altruistic consumption. Sounds like an oxymoron, does it not? Consumption on the one hand is defined as the using up of a resource, while altruism on the other is, and I quote, the belief in or practice of disinterested and selfless concern for the well-being of others. Never the twain shall meet, right? Not according to this week's Inside Asia guest, Anurag Banerjee. He's the founder and CEO of Quilt AI, an artificial intelligence or AI-enabled consulting firm that mines data for the greater good. What kind of business is that, you ask? One that cares, comes the reply. Go to the company's homepage and the words human empathy at scale jump off the screen. Case in point, on May 7, his group released its Beyond the Bottom Line Sustainability Report with two stated objectives. The first, to uncover six so-called cultural codes of sustainability representing what matters to people with regards to being sustainable, ethical, and responsible. And the second, to measure and rank the sustainability performance of 50 organizations across 10 industries. Why is Anurag and Quilt AI taking on such a monumental task? Because the age of the altruistic consumer is at hand, he says, and aligning corporate practices with this new set of consumer wants and needs is what it's all about. On a recent afternoon, we found a quiet corner at the 1880 Members Club in Singapore. There, we settle into a conversation about corporate responsibility, mindful consumption, and the shift in global buying habits. This report is targeting the concept of the ideas around sustainability. And it, it, it's, it's interesting to me because you've, you've looked at a variety of different ways that the public thinks about sustainability. You've then crafted a view both on how a brand is projects itself and then you've taken the data that's available and then you've tried to determine whether or not that stacks up to the perception. Is that largely accurate? Yes, so, so every, every brand there, or most brands there, are making a tremendous effort in leaving the planet a better place, uh, some more than others, in hiring equally, in being transparent about what they do. Um, we're trying to see if what they say they're doing is matched up with what people feel um, they're doing. And you're cutting across all industries, all sectors. How many brands are you assessing? We looked at about, about 3,000 different companies. And we ended up with the top 50. 50 seemed like a nice nice number. Um, and that, that was the intent to keep it manageable as with our first report. I do intend to release one every quarter. Um, with the advantage that our tech has is you don't need to do a six-month process to build this thing. You can do this in four, five, seven days. Mm. And so as brands evolve and as customers evolve, this becomes a living thing that brands can use as a, as a Bible, if you will. How, how essential or important is the idea of sustainability to consumers when they think about making purchases? Uh, so this is it's a great question. I think it's, this is some, something, something similar to organic. So the other day I was at cold storage buying milk and groceries and I looked at a carton of organic milk and it was about two and a half times our, our regular milk choice, um, which it is, is a premium milk anyway. And I'm sitting there making this decision going, hmm, what should I really do here? And I, 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 I actually surprised myself, um, and I, I say this intentionally, I picked up the carton that was organic. Mm. And uh, I think there is, a, there is a flip that's happened in the last, I would say, two to three years, where people initially weren't willing to pay the premium for leaving the planet a better place. And I think as this movement has grown more and more, um, people are willing to embrace that, hence the entire, you know, 
farm-to-table piece, responsible sourcing, less use of plastic, um, landfills. So there's, there's a, I don't explain it, there is this, there's this um, strong organic movement where people are making responsible choices, consuming less, recycling more. There's lots still to be done, of course, but um, um, it's, it's very intentioned and very broad. So as you're standing in front of that case of milk and looking at all those, uh, all of those ideas were running through your head in terms of what's good for the planet, what's good for me, what's good for my daughter, all of these things are, are, are passing through your mind? Yes, and you know, one of the things was, do I really need a, two cartons of milk, right? And that's an important component of what we have. It's our mindful consumption. And we all, me included, buy more than we need. Um, the stuff we throw away every every day, every month, every week. So I won't say every thought went through it, but I, I know that people like us, Steve, you and me, uh, are surrounded by people who are deliberately making choices. Um, I know a friend of mine who's reduced their air travel, um, and they go on less holidays. They go on one holiday, it's a longer holiday, but as you know from Singapore, many people take these short weekend trips. And this couple with three kids is now doing less travel. They're doing one big trip every year for three weeks, um, but they're not doing the five or six short trips. That yeah. And that's to reduce their carbon footprint yes. or because they feel like, well, for our well-being, we don't need to be getting on and off of planes or, or what's going through their minds? For, for this particular couple, um, it's primarily the carbon footprint. Mm. And, and I, I mean, the, I guess one of the things that we do need to look at or I, I suggest we, we look at is there are those of us who are privileged. Um, and therefore we can make those decisions. But the vast amount of the world lives saying we have milk and just having milk is good enough. So how pervasive is this? Or for uh, corporations, MNCs, who are trying to sell to the top 5% of the world, maybe it doesn't, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe as long as we to target those people who can make those buying decisions with that level of freedom, that's good enough to actually then enlist changes by those multinationals. Is, is, is that kind of the way this is going through? So I'll give you a three-part answer on that. One, I think I, I don't think it's true that this is a privileged decision anymore. I think if you go, if you go back 50, 70, 100 years, people lived more sustainably than they do today. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you take a brand like Patanjali in India, it, it's ridden the organic, sustainable movement and is this massive um, consumer goods threat to large companies like Unilever, etc. If I think of companies like Mattel, who I was speaking to a few days ago, um, they want to be the Unilever of toys, and they want to be more sustainable. And it, Unilever of toys? Yes, in, in, in the way, so Paul Polman, the ex of Unilever, has done a tremendous job of talking about sustainability. Many of their goals are associated with it. It, it became, a, they have a, they have a sustainable life plan. Um, and so many organizations now seek to mimic that. And more, more, more than that, I think the, if you, if you, you know, we were in Bhutan recently and we were hiking through these hills and my, my nine-year-old daughter goes, dad, and we, I turned this corner, literally Steve, I turned the corner and bam, there's probably 10, 15 tons of garbage. And what these companies have done, the Pepsis and the Cokes, et cetera, and I, I don't mean to name them to single them out, but every consumer goods company in trying to get to the bottom of the pyramid of the lower middle class, they've created these products and not invested in the infrastructure or not supported the investment in the infrastructure to make the, once, once the shampoo sachet that costs you 10 cents is used, what do you do with it? It's not recyclable because it's aluminum in it, right? It's cast off. 
it's cast off. Yeah, and this is this for those who listeners who haven't been to Bhutan. It's the Shangri-La. It's a mountainous, beautiful, pristine part of the world. Uh, very remote, hard to get to. It must be shocking to be amidst those mountains and all that beauty, and then see piles of garbage. It's it's deeply disappointing, and I think the. For for a lot of us who we and we're making this sustainability a little bit about garbage, but let's stay there for a minute. Um, for folks who don't see where their garbage goes, it's an issue. Uh, for folks who don't understand, one of the things we talk about is food politics in our piece of work. So the food that shows up in our grocery stores, mm-hmm. in the Whole Foods, in the Kroger's, in the Tesco's, in the cold storages in Singapore, um, is always almost always perfect. But if you've ever been to a farm, which I, I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners have, food that comes out of the ground doesn't look perfect, doesn't have the most amazing colors. And I know heirloom tomatoes are cool, but by and large, misshapen pieces of produce are thrown away by the billions, right? So the, the, there is a choice there that needs to be made around, um, it doesn't have to be pretty, um, it still tastes fine. Your argument here is that basically the world is not just that privileged few, but everybody is starting because of the access of information, starting to think about the way they live their lives differently at all levels, at all income levels. Yes, and I think the, you know, if you go back to the privileged few, um, there is an element in our report that talks about feel-good altruism. Now, I, I am I'm ashamed to admit this, but when I when I donate or I give time, I feel really good. It's the best version of me often, right? Mm. It's about as close as it gets. Uh, I mean, being a good parent sometimes probably is equivalent, but when you're sitting in a room of wealthy people wearing a tuxedo and you're writing a check, it feels nice. When you give time and you walk into school uh, and paint a wall, it feels nice. And we're seeing a surge in that, not just in the privileged, but in the middle class and the upper middle class um, echelons. And, the, and the, the awareness needs to increase um, because the lower socioeconomic classes need to be informed that plastic is not recyclable. Plastic, uh, over the last 15, 20 years, became this um, badge of luxury. Mm. So you would walk away from a grocery store with stuff in a plastic bag, right? And that's meant you almost arrived because you could go to a grocery store instead of getting it wrapped in newspaper or in plantain leaf, you got a plastic bag. So it meant you were, you know, you, you had a little bit of wealth mm-hmm. and that that piece needs to also be changed um, backwards. So um, in, in Bali, they've just recently banned plastic bags uh, because you had heaps of garbage piling up across, again, this island paradise. Uh, and I was commenting on this and, and the plastic and even in the local villages, they were starting to recycle and break things down and, and, and really make a little bit of money off of this. But then somebody pointed out, well, it's fine to a degree, but then if you go all the way out to Papua, uh, the idea of actually having a plastic bottle is an enormous benefit to people who are trying to carry port water and manage things. So at some level, plastic was a good thing, and then it became a very bad thing. So uh, it's interesting to watch how people, it's a different perspective. And I guess I'm re- raising this because socioeconomic class and, and the relative relationship with modern conveniences is an important factor. And I guess I'm just trying to, to think, how can we be more sustainable, but at the same time, make sure that we don't impose our privileged views on those who actually might gain some benefit from some of the things that are available in the market. No, that's that's. I think I think so. That's very true. The the pl- plastic is not a bad thing. Mm. If I if I plastic has many 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 benefits across healthcare, industrial applications, things that is used extremely well. And I think there is 
there is a potential to create the next generation product in, for many of our many of the brands that that I mentioned in this report, mm-hmm. um, and and we shouldn't inflict our our privileged point of view on on the lower socioeconomic classes, but we should definitely support them with infrastructure, with education, and then challenge governments, challenge cities, challenge organizations to do a better job um, when they're marketing to the lower socioeconomic classes. So, so it, I mean, these are fascinating topics, and, and, and unless we digress further, I really want to come back to your report. And you really, when you define sustainability in the front of the report, it, it looks at the span of planet on the left to people on the right. And within the, that spectrum, you've, you've identified six categories. Um, and I'm just quickly going to read them because I think it's interesting. The first one is innovative rejuvenation. The second one is mindful consumption. The third one is feel-good altruism. The fourth is radical transparency. The fifth is holistic well-being. And the sixth is equality and inclusion. Now, that pretty much covers it all. What a huge category and how fascinating. But then help us understand how you applied artificial intelligence, your algorithms, using massive amounts of data in order to drill down across those six categories. Sure, and and the reason we we um, we wanted to build a fairly exhaustive piece of work, and while it's about sustainability and what consumers perceive, in some ways it's also about what the companies need to be to be more sustainable. And Airbnb has this beautiful, I think, thousand-year organization letter, um, where they want to last for a thousand years, and that's ambitious and big. And you know, we keep forgetting that some of these companies are eight, ten, fifteen, twenty, even Google's twenty years old, right? So the idea of living forever it means they have to do things in a sustainable manner. And so part of it is around, one one end is around being good to their people, being equal, being inclusive, uh, being transparent about what they do, how they how they behave, and how they perceive to behave. So when we started with the idea that there were these, um, these elements from planet to people that were important for not just the consumer, but for the well-being of these organizations. Because we didn't want to build a name and shame list, right? Those exist. Um, there are many of them that do force rankings, but if, if each organization is left with, oh, I need to do this, and that allows me to hire better, then that's a good thing for that company. You're suggesting to treat your employees kinder and more gently and more thoughtfully actually can perpetuate the company? Because for 100 years, I think it was actually how how punitive and defined can we be in getting and squeezing every bit of, of energy out of our employees possible in order to get the result. I'm not going to name names, but there's lots of organizations that have built themselves on the basis. What's shifted and why is this different? Clearly, there is there is a movement in people choosing to work the way they want to work, mm-hmm. choosing how they want to um, consume, how they want to uh, be gainfully employed, how they want to earn a wage, and you can't fight that movement, right? And so the smart organizations are getting on top of it mm-hmm. and creating situations, um, and those could be simple situations like take my laundry away, or to, I think, more holistic and complete situations is how do I get Steve to be the best work version of him when he walks in the door and how do I use him for the time that I get from him um, without without being draconian. Um, at the same time you can't be completely laissez-faire because then you wouldn't have a 
then the capitalism would break down, which some might be in favor of anyway. So I, I guess what you're saying is that the linkage here is between data and information that is in the marketplace that helps inform people about where they want to work and who they want to work for. And therefore, the process of recruiting and retaining people is different by virtue of that information being available. So corporations need to adjust themselves in order to attract the right people. Is that is that where we're going? Yes. And and, and many already have. And, you know, as we, and we, when we looked, we looked through tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of data points on this. We looked, at, we looked at Twitter, we looked at news, we looked at other social media platforms, we looked at companies' websites, and our, we have this, you know, we, we call it Slate, this analytics engine that runs across all of these different things and very quickly surfaces clusters and meaning outcomes that we then analyze and we give names like innovative rejuvenation to it. But but organically, data flows from, from, the, from the AI engine, engine to us. And, and the um, and the and the and the main ones that flew um, that flew to the top were were these six categories. Mm-hmm. So it was and and they flew almost in an up up in an equally weighted manner. So uh, the engine picked the categories. We named them interestingly, um, but these are the areas that an organization needs to look at to not only market to its consumers better, to its stakeholders more responsibly, but also to hire hire the best employees it seeks to hire and keep. This is Steve Stein, and you're listening to Inside Asia. I'm in conversation with Anurag Banerjee, founder and CEO of Quilt AI. When we come back, a look at what it means to be a mindful consumer and how Anurag and his firm set out to define what it means to be sustainable. Inside Asia is supported in part by Black Marketing, the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing agency, created and led by the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing masterclass instructor, entrepreneur, and best-selling author, Chris J. Reed. Black Marketing is an award-winning, independent, boutique, B2B marketing consultancy that specializes in enabling you to achieve your business objectives through LinkedIn. Learn more at www.blackmarketing.com. This is Steve Stein, and you're listening to Inside Asia. My guest is Anurag Banerjee, founder and CEO of Quilt AI. He's on a mission to scale human empathy by applying the tools of artificial intelligence to uncover insights about the way we live, work, and consume. Let's get back to our conversation. Let's take one category and break it down. How about uh, mindful consumption? Yes. All right. Let's talk about that. Then mindful consumption is really this, almost like the example you gave with buying the milk. You're faced with a buying, a purchasing opportunity, and you're thinking about not just how good that product is going to be, but the implications of buying it to the world, to community, uh, you know, fair labor. There there might be a thousand little points that cross through your mind as you make that. This is something that's relatively new. So if you take that category, tell us how you worked it, how you worked the data, and which type of organization showed up for that. Sure. So, you know, we've got, we've got I think, three or four case studies in the report, and uh, folks should read it. Um, so in terms of mindful consumption, there are a couple of areas. So we talked about food waste, uh, food politics, which is around the pretty food, food elements. But there are other things. So Patagonia, which is now uh, in the news for um, sending the $10 million that they got as a tax relief to environmental causes. Um, um, they ran an ad campaign around their product and not to buy their product. So, and, and instead reuse it or repurpose it. And so they ran that. You, you spend a lot of time in Bali, Steve, and there's this whole movement that's happening around 
responsible tourism or ecotourism or you know if you're hiking come out with what you take in so there there those are the movements so not it's not just about buying less and buying smart it's about every element of your life so it's and Marie Kondo is obviously very fashionable these days for all the right reasons she advocates a minimalist life and thousands hundreds and thousands tens of thousands millions of people are are embracing that lifestyle by just buying less mm. and buying buying what they need um there will be a ripple in some shape or form um and then we see this with the millennial and the zenial generation right they are spending more on experiences and these experiences are more mindful and deliberate and thoughtful um than than i would say just pure consumerism so when you ran the analytics on this you then identified companies that were actively trying to project themselves as being as appealing to this type of consumer set and then you looked at the perceptions of those companies in order to determine whether or not they were meeting their goals or not would that be an accurate telling of it, it, it yes with one important uh, one important big piece which they then and that was is there is there a trend here is minimalism important so it doesn't matter if you know you you are aspiring to be minimalist in in how you are selling your produce right so do you give fewer choices of shampoo instead of having 15 variants right which would get confusing when you walk into the store um um or do you do you advocate or for your hotel chain right what do you do as a hotel chain do you change particular things um instead of having five different kinds of products in the bathroom can you reduce that can you do more with with so people when they walk in they feel that they're in an environment where they are consuming mindfully so is this important to me yes okay. exactly so so you also looked at it over time i think a 3 year span for each category so is mindful consumption something which is uh, an element of rising importance for consumers versus 3 years ago yes so each of these codes has more than quadrupled in the last 3 years mm. so we found some things that hadn't grown at the same rate but each of these six codes and the constituents of them so there were four or five constituents of each of the codes have shown dramatic increase and an increase in terms of things like um people searching for better tourism alternatives people searching to do more with their time people searching to volunteer people searching to understand organic versus not people searching to understand can i go to an eco dairy farm with my kids and milk cows for a week mm-hmm. and i know that's privileged but it's better than going to an amman resort and hanging out for 7 days as much as amman resorts are nice so this isn't a slam it's just that there is there is a, the world is shifting mm-hmm. in a particular way where people are deliberate about every choice they make what planes they get on um what clothes they buy what food they eat where does the food come from um and organizations that are catering to that um are going to benefit tremendously so when in this category for instance um of those that were trying to project of those corporations trying to project themselves as being a, a, a attuned to mindful consumption what were the big surprises in those findings did you have uh you know organizations that thought that they were doing a great job and yet the public did not see them that way uh and by and i know it right at this point it's not by name but it's more by industrial category or sector could you share with us some of those thoughts so on on the names will be out on the 7th of may we're trying to be cute about it um but uh, we we found that most organizations by and large fell short um on the mindful consumption category because it it flies in the face of everything we've known for the last 100 years to use your point from 10 minutes ago is we had a certain method we were going to put all our products and all their variants in the shelves at Walmart and you were going to have 
as many options as you wanted. Choice was the important thing, right? If you think about marketing, um, um, last sort of 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And, and now it's not about choice as in terms of optionality, it's in terms of um, it's, in, it's preference. And the preference is not, oh, I have 10, I'm gonna choose one. Oh, you've met my preference and my preference is to um, know the ingredients at the back. <laughs> my preference is to see if this is a recyclable, refillable bottle. My preference is to know what, what percentage of your sourcing is from minority women-owned organizations or organically. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you treat it? Like, there is this whole mix, right? So people are, are fickle when it comes to brands. Marketers have already known, always known that. Mm-hmm. Um, but to respond to that fickle now, you have to be, you have to stand for something. And the brands that stand for it get actually inordinate amounts of loyalty. So Patagonia is another exa- an, an, an epic example of loyalty. My ski jacket from Patagonia is probably 14 years old, right? And um, and people you know, get theirs repaired. There's another suitcase brand called Briggs & Riley, which didn't make the cut um, on our 50 brands. But they're amazing. I've had their product for eight, 10, 12 years, and a zipper goes off and I go and I get it replaced, right? And, and, and that's amazing because I don't need to buy a new product. I, I, I'm, I'm talking about Briggs & Riley in the podcast, which you know, every, lots of travelers will listen to. So that, and that builds this brand passion um, that is more than there are 14 variants of shaving blades. Well, that's, and that's the one thing that, we, it, so in effect, if right now, and shampoos are a great example. I mean, there is a shampoo for every type of hair type, even scalp dry. Even for bald men, yeah, even for bald men. Yeah, even, yeah, yeah, I can't imagine what shampoo you use. I, I, soap is what I was thinking. But, but, but then if you have, if you have this, these, all these micro categories, maybe 30 different varieties from one manufacturer, it's overwhelming. Some people love that and said, yeah, they've really nailed exactly what I need. But in theory, what you're saying is if this trend continues, we should see a reduction of options on those store shelves in the next five to ten years should we not we should so I have a pet peeve against shampoo and it's primarily because I'm a bald guy mm-hmm. but if you think about every shampoo ad in the last 50 years this is how it goes a woman almost always walks in the door she has groceries in her hand or she's come back from work kids are running and screaming she drops the groceries on a table and retreats to the bathroom to have a shower the water starts and a chemical reaction is shown, right? It's either dandruff or grease or pollution. She comes out looking not too sexy, but comfortable, relaxed. Every single ad. Mm. Like, so we have an interesting AI platform that actually dissects ads. We've dissected more than two and a half million ads. A large portion of them are shampoo ads. To see how they resonate? To see, exactly. So, yeah. so we're building, one of the things we have is, is, is can you actually test an ad very quickly against a bank of amazing ads without asking people, which is how it's, how it's done today by, by agencies. So, so you know, you, that's the exact narrative of every single shampoo ads. It could, be, it could be brand X, brand Y, brand Z, brand A, brand B. There is no differentiation at all. Mm. And so, so what do you stand for then, right? So we have the evidence, we have the data, we know these things are true because you ha- you can able to analyze at a at a at a micro level the way that people are responding to what corporations and advertisers are doing. Yet 
I don't see personally a shift in the practices or behaviors of corporations or advertisers. I still see them doing the same thing largely, maybe giving a little window dressing to kind of say, yeah, and we are sustainable too. It's almost an afterthought for them, but I don't see it penetrating the culture of these organizations, nor do I see it reforming the way that they're leveraging their capabilities to appeal to consumers. Am I missing something? No, I, I mean, I, I, I think I would, I would be kinder than that, and I'm, I'm, I'm significantly more optimistic than that. And, and the, the evidence, uh, at least in my maybe self-selected circle, and it could be just my filter bubble, which is highly possible. But there are, there are many organizations that are doing an amazing job, and we, you know, we hope to, as I said in my one of my posts, we hope to celebrate some of them or most of them on on the seventh of May. Uh, I'm going to send a note to each of their CMOs thanking them for the effort uh, that they're putting in. Um, it, it's tough, though. It's tough. It uh, flies against, um, um, I won't say conventional wisdom, but it flies against inertia. Mm -hmm. And inertia, as you know, Steve, is really hard to get over. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, how, do you, how do you, why isn't Singapore plastic free, right? Mm -hmm. It's an evolved nation. We have, uh, it's a controversial thing to say potentially, but we have, we have the ability um, we have it's a small enough country. Why aren't electric vehicles here? Um, so it, it's what would you say? What would you say? What's your answer? Yeah, that's your question. Can you answer that? I, I, the answer is I don't know. I, I think I know. It's entrenched interests. It's entrenched <laughs> interest, right? Yeah. You've got money behind all these things. You have uh, wealthy individuals and organizations that have a vested interest in maintaining them. Right. I mean, it's true with with uh, you know carbon burning cars versus electric yeah. cars. I mean, you could go right down the category. So I guess my my question is just to push back a little harder. I I, I believe it or not, and I'm an optimist as well. But I also fear that some of those entrenched interests are so big and weighty that it's going to take more than just a few interesting ideas about my purchasing decision to move this this mammoth into actually behaving more like a, a modern beast yeah so I mean I, I think uh, there is no doubt there are entrenched interests across the world on multiple multiple things uh, the the idea though is right can can each of us in their own way make a difference mm -hmm. and that sounds sounds cute in its own way but it's a starfish analogy right i'm walking on the beach i'm chucking the starfish back in the ocean because that one it made a difference right and, and i and i fundamentally believe that i fundamentally believe that the idea isn't whole scale change is impossible to make we were hosting an event the other day and somebody said you know how are how, how is the world going to change around around women and and i know we're deviating here around women and wage Equality. Um, I'm, I don't know, but for the women we hire, we should we are paying them market wages. When my daughter walks in the door to our office and she sees sixty-five percent women, then so so is it a are we a thousand people company? No, but I I can only be accountable for the change that I can make. Um, and so stuff like this hopefully allows more people to be accountable and and own them. Yeah. Um, it'll it'll take time, but yeah. you you can't give up. You're 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 you're, um, you're fleshing out some of the issues that are important to people now and trying to raise awareness to the point that hopefully over time corporations organizations make changes in accordance with the expectations of consumers. Yes, and, and I think I think it 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 boils down to a lot of of 
privileged people and and even middle class people which i would you know bucket bucket uh, us and not to offend you um doing doing the right things um there are things that we can impact in a sphere of influence um whether it's the amount of money we donate or the choices we make we have neighbors who walk in their house with with 65 plastic bags after a visit to cold storage uh, double bagging everything just in case you know <laughs> how do you change that right how do you so if i can change that that would be epic instead of trying to change one poor person living in a corner of india or for the philippines um, on the one sachet that they have let me segue a little bit into the output or the outcome from your report so so um, and and this is this is a question in terms of once uh, the top 50 uh, recognize by virtue of the findings of your report how they show up first on how they think they project themselves right. there's then the opportunity to use that data to start to, sh- to, to redesign and redevelop their messaging so that they can change those perceptions isn't there the possibility that they can actually start to use that data in a way to manipulate people's thinking so it's not instead of actually making the changes within their organizations or to their products so look every good marketer will want you to perceive their product better than than it is right um social media technology allows you to do um a more pervasive job of it i wouldn't say a better job of it but a more pervasive job of it in some some shape or form so yes yeah, so so can someone work on the perception yes but perception often is reality right so um there are, we find the opposite that some organizations are not are not saying enough of what they're doing, right? So they may have done some amazing things with the supply chain, but that is so much less sexy than um, sponsoring an ocean cleanup. Also important, right? But if you're buying product and you're reducing the plastic, God, plastic again, but reducing the plastic by four or five percent across millions of bottles, that's fantastic, right? Um, or if you're um, adding um, a collection capability across. Um, across the entire countries. That's fantastic too, but you're doing it discreetly. So we, we actually find the opposite. We find that most of the 50 organizations that are bubbling to the top are quieter about the work they do. And that's really heartwarming, right? Mm. It's, so there's, uh, there's an opportunity, we think, for them to make more noise, and we support that. We think mm. they should celebrate the work they're doing. Mm. Some have a long way to go, uh, hence they didn't make the list. Mm. And even on the list of people who made it, um, have have some material gaps. Yeah, I, I guess I'm pointing to, for instance, um, in, in in the in the uh, for hospitality sector, hotels, right. and and they make a big deal about you know reuses towels save the earth, and 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 you see that now and all this, and and cynical me says they just saving the laundry bills here. I, I really don't believe they care about that. This is me being cynical. I'm not sure that's true or not. It's just a perception, but that is my perception. So if they show up and the hotels are claiming to be out there uh, and you know pick any brand you want as being um, thinking about the earth and thinking about sustainability in that way, but then the perception from your report comes back to say, like I just said, I don't buy it. Then they have an opportunity to either change their behaviors and change what they do or to change their ad campaigns to somehow lead me to believe they're different. That's the danger I see. How do we know and how can we detect whether or not they're actually making those changes and and walking the talk or they're just manipulating us through more creative, targeted ad campaigns using the data available to them to make us think that they're actually better than they are? 
<laughs> well, you, know, you have to fundamentally believe that you know, mankind is good, right? So you have to, you have to you know, wake up, you know, wake up with that assumption. So I'm sounding like the Dark Lord right now, aren't I? Yeah. No, it's it's, yeah. it's 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 an important. I think with hotels, um, if you just pick that one, and I spend, gosh, hundreds of nights a year sometimes in hotels. So um, I am, um, well, and if you just dissect that particular example. Sure, the laundry bill is important, but you know, I walk in there and they say, "Hey, Mr. Banerjee, welcome back. You're, you know, whatever titanium elite, something or the other. Um, would you like 500 more points?" And I have like six million points. Would you like 500 more points to not get um, fresh, fresh um, towels every day? And I sign up. So I think, and and that allows me to then buy hotel nights and holiday that we're going to. So I, I like what they've done. Um, is they have their has their cost structure come down? Yes. Um, but I would argue the opposite. Um, most organizations, the most commercially sensible organizations that could do this kind of creative ad targeting could also very easily pass on the cost of the laundry bill to us, right? Um, and um, if, they're, if, they're, if they're not doing that, then hopefully at the end I have a cheaper, um, more value for money experience. But mm-hmm. I'm just being super optimistic at this point in time. Well, and, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to push you just a little far <laughs> harder on this because I know you're doing a nice job bridging, as they say. But I really do want to know data is available to everybody. Right. And those who know how you use it for good, use it for good. Those who know how to use it in order to deceive or to manipulate will do so. I'm simply asking the question, should we be aware or can there be checks and balances on the use of data to make sure that in fact, when your next report comes out, we actually see an effective change in their behaviors or their processes versus more fresh ad campaigns that simply seek to change the perception? I I, I agree and look, I think there Mankind's always been good or bad, depending on how you define it, right? And I would argue, like many, many people do, that we're living in the nicest time in history on multiple metrics, regardless of, you know, what's, what some people perceive as being, being very challenging in the, world, in the world today. So if you believe that, um, then that's, that's, that's one. Second is truly from a data perspective, right? And, and living in the world of AI for the last couple of years, um, the humbling part is this, right? There are those people who say that AI and data can do all kinds of damage, right? And the truth is, like, it's, I mean, my nine-year-old is, my, my five-year-old is significantly smarter than the AI engines we use. They just, they're, they're narrow, they're capable in, in a one-dimensional way. And honestly, um, most large organizations, and I mean no disrespect when I say this, most large organizations do not use data well. Mm-hmm. Think about the t- last time you had an amazing data-led experience either in your news feed or in a public setting. Like you walk into a bank, right? You may have banked with them for 20 years. If it's not your private bank or if it's somebody else at the tail, right? Like what do you get that's custom? If you walk into an airline outside of maybe SQ sometimes, you walk into any other airline, like how custom is your experience? Um, you walk into a hotel outside of some basic stuff, how custom is experience? You may buy the same watch brand for the last 10 years. So, so people actually, honestly, aren't utilizing data well, um, which is the shame to me. You can, I, I would love, you know, when I was on your podcast the last time, I made this example of having a drink at a bar in New York mm. where I spoke, talked baseball with this guy and I have a tab running there for 20 years. Mm. Right? That experience, that human experience of him having data that he was able to convey to make 
a more enriching, engaging conversation happen. That is not yet happening in a systemic level with data. So I, I, I don't worry about are, are, are bad things being done with data? Yes. Are registries being built? Yes. But holistically, most large organizations are not yet um, using data in a sophisticated way. This sentence is going to get me a lot of trouble, but it is actually a true sentence. For better or for worse, you give me hope. <laughs> and, and, and you are truly the Buddha of the AI consulting world. And uh, this innate goodness of man thing is going to stick with me throughout the day. And I thank you for that. Anurag, thank you so much for taking time out. Thank you for sharing with us. And we wish you every success. Thanks, Steve. Always a pleasure. That was my most recent conversation with Anurag Banerjee, founder and CEO of Quilt AI. If you enjoyed this episode and want to listen to my earlier discussion with Anurag, visit us at www.insideasiapodcast.com and look for my December 3, 2018 episode. In this program, we discuss the social impact of artificial intelligence. Now for the Asia Insider Minute, that moment in the program where I reflect on the conversation you just heard and pose a few questions of my own. How often have we heard it said, the customer is always right? That statement, coined in 1909 by Harry Gordon Selfridge, founder of Selfridge Department Store in London, is so true as to be trite. It's an uncontested fact that companies rise and fall on the ability to attract and retain customers. For decades, that meant churning out new products, innovating, and churning some more, while all the time pumping millions of dollars into advertising to keep brands top of mind. Two events have made this endeavor more challenging than ever before. The first is e-commerce. Its arrival just 20 years ago changed retailing forever, instantly empowering consumers with choice and access. The second is competition. Name a category and on average there are hundreds if not thousands of products buying for your business. To survive, the manufacturers have gone all out, increasing output, inventory turns, and new product launches. Through marketing campaigns and social media, they've driven the world into believing that to stay ahead, you must own the newest or latest product, gimmick, or design. It's consumerism run amok, and for a sophisticated coterie of corporate elites, it's money in the bank. In certain parts of the world and among certain sets where consumerism is the lead pastime, the frenzy will ensue. Yet rising up from many corners of our globe are a set of more conscientious and mindful individuals who see through products. Beyond the new and shiny thing in itself, every product carries with it a tale of its making. How much water was wasted making that t-shirt? How many African miners suffered extracting rare earth minerals for your cell phone? What products use palm oil and how many forests were destroyed so you could shampoo your hair? I don't know about you, but at least until recently, these weren't questions I asked myself while doing the weekly shopping. That's all changed. Consumers, and millennials in particular, are asking and in some cases demanding that corporations modify their behavior with an emphasis on sustainability. Manufacturers have two choices. They can respond by limiting production, expanding product life, and reducing their carbon footprint, or they can take the easier, albeit circumspect, route of using data to alter consumer perception, projecting a greener image, and quieting the call for more sustainable products. My guest Anurag Banerjee says he vests in the innate goodness of organizations and says there's no hiding from the truth. What data can hide, it can also reveal. I suppose I found some twisted satisfaction in Anurag's assurance that corporations are still a long way off from knowing how to make good use of even the simplest data sets. In other words, if you fear that corporations will use big data to manipulate consumer perception, fear not. 
Most are still mired in data they still don't know how to use. If that's true, it doesn't necessarily put my mind at ease. It's like that cave troll in Lord of the Rings. A massive hulking thing swinging a big club. A lot of hit and miss. Stinging arrows like consumer tweets are swept aside. The troll advances. It rants and raves, still swinging. He knocks over columns and takes out a few archers. The hobbit lies before him, trapped. But of course, we know how this story ends. They have a cave troll. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. To listen to this or any of our other 87 conversations, join us at www.insideasiapodcast.com or if you prefer, download from iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. It's free, so what are you waiting for? Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia is supported in part by Black Marketing, the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing agency, Created and led by the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing masterclass instructor, entrepreneur, and best-selling author, Chris J. Reed. Black Marketing is an award-winning, independent, boutique, B2B marketing consultancy that specializes in enabling you to achieve your business objectives through LinkedIn. Learn more at www.blackmarketing.com.